It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. The views expressed by the commentators do not necessarily reflect the views of the City of Code St. Luke or the Code St. Luke Public Library. All right, with that out of the way, here is Hershey Dwoskin with In the Headlines. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining in. Um, I had said last week that I would begin to discuss, uh, to do uh, uh, a good um, uh, discussion about the elections that are coming up in Israel, which are coming up in less than two weeks, so March 23rd. And I would like for people to try to um, to uh, understand in a way um, that this is not just a discussion about one place in particular, but in a way how a political system reflects the people that it serves. Or in other words, how, why, why is a political system created in a way, uh, in one way and not in a different way? And um, you know, how does that all sort of mesh with personalities, with history and everything else? So it's, it's a fascinating subject um, and it's a fascinating subject on so many different levels. Um, the, um, uh, the, the sort of history of democracy itself or representative government does go back, you know, in some cases, you know, on a local level to Switzerland uh, back in the 1200s. But sort of, uh, you know, the way we know uh, democracy, it, it kind of really developed uh, slowly in England, um, where uh, elections were held on local levels to select representatives who may not have had power, but who had something to say in the way of representing their people in the House of Commons. And slowly but surely, you know, through uh, the slow development in England and through the American Revolution, um, uh, democracy developed in different ways in different countries to represent the different flavors of each country. We all know how complicated the American system is. Uh, we all know uh, our own system, how uh, relatively simple it is. Um, and Israel has chosen a, a different path altogether to uh, have uh, elections represent the will of its people. Uh, in some certain senses, Israel is a most remarkable case uh, history because it is a country in the Middle East. Uh, the Middle East has no real uh, experience with democracy. Um, there never were democratic governments uh, in the Middle East. Certainly, the Turks ruled for 400 years from uh, uh, 1514, say, to 1917. So there was no democracy there. Um, and any sort of governments that were established in the Middle East post-World War I, such as in uh, Iraq or Syria or Jordan or Lebanon um, uh, or Saudi Arabia, uh, had no real success with democracy. Uh, there are some partial successes. Uh, Turkey is a kind of a partial in a way. Uh, Tunisia in the Middle East is a sort of another partial, but Israel is, is just about the only country that has had an unblemished uh, democratic record. 
from the time it was founded in uh, 1948 until today. There's never been a military coup. There's never been a seizure of government. There's never been a political revolution. Um, so that's a kind of a remarkable uh, track record in a, um, in, in, in a region of great instability. Uh, so what I would like to do is to discuss uh, a little bit about how the Israeli system works in general, why this system was picked as opposed to other systems, uh, to uh, talk about uh, the structure of it a bit, and if we have time this week to look into the different political parties and, and what's at stake in this particular election. Um, and so basically that's going to be the structure of the, uh, of the class. Um, um, the political system which is used in Israel today is pretty well rare in the democratic world today. Um, it's, uh, Israel may be the only case of um, a country using a pure proportional democratic system. Um, whereas in the olden days, in the, in, in the olden days in, in Western democracies, this system was used quite a bit more. But because of the faults of the system, uh, they've changed in many different ways to other systems and Israel is almost the last holdout in a pure proportional uh, representation system. So a proportional representation system simply means that if you get 10% of the votes, you get 10% of the seats. If you get 50% of the votes, you get 50% of the seats. So the seats are given out or power is given out proportionally to the percentage of vote that the different political parties receive. There's always a cutoff point where you have to achieve a certain minimum because the system doesn't want to have uh, dozens and dozens of tiny little factions in the parliament. And so a cutoff system is usually established and uh, we'll get up to it a bit later, but um, in Israel, the cutoff system today is three and a quarter percent of the vote. So if a party does not get three and a quarter percent, none of its votes count, they're all thrown out. Um, when Israel was established, there in a sense was no cutoff point. So, um, you know, they've moved it up from just about nothing to three and a quarter percent over the last 70 years. A proportional representation system has tremendous advantages and disadvantages. And if we just think of the last Canadian election, the last American election, uh, or in the two previous American elections, uh, you get the idea of why it is such a good system. So, for example, uh, you know, if I ask you the question uh, in Canada in the last election, which party won the most votes? Uh, if you knew the right answer, it's the Conservative Party. And yet we have Trudeau as a prime minister. If I asked you, um, you know, in the previous American election, who got most votes, Hillary Clinton or Trump? The answer is Clinton by, by um, she won by two and a half million votes. And yet Trump was president. Uh, the Republican party only won the majority of votes once since 2000. 
and they've had you know pri- uh, presidents from Bush to uh, uh, you know to Trump. So a proportional representation system solves this problem in that it awards the most seats and the most power to the party that gets most votes. Um, also, an advantage of this system is that smaller ideas and smaller parties get representation. So for example, in Canada, say the Green Party, which has always polled around 5% of the, has received about 5% of the vote, sometimes has polled in some places even up to 10 or 12% of the vote, uh, has won maybe one or two seats. And in our parliament, uh, by proportional representation, uh, let's say 5% of what, 338 seats, I think. So uh, you're talking now uh, 16 seats that 5% would, re- would represent. So our system is built to, to mitigate against anybody but big parties getting elected, but it does, incur- it does allow for regional parties to get elected. So in other words, if you're strong only in one place, like the Bloc Québécois is only strong in Quebec, if they're strong enough, they can get quite a few seats. But parties that are strong everywhere, but are strong nowhere, like for example, the NDP uh, in this past election, they, they, they get somewhere around 18% of the vote, but nowhere near 18% of the seats. A proportional representation system matches the, um, the results of the vote with results of seats. So that is, in a sense, a strictly, in a way, almost the most democratic system. Uh, so if it sounds so good, why has everyone abandoned? The answer is simply that um, besides the idea of wanting to have a democratic representation of the results, um, countries want to have a stable government. So if you've got a proportional representation system, rather than voting for a party that you agree with, say three quarters of what they want, but disagree with a quarter, you could find a party that you agree with 100% of what they want and vote for that party. And so a proportional representation system always ends up with more than two parties uh, elected. Uh, In fact, it never ends up with two parties elected. It's always way more. Um, you know, to give you an idea, in Israel, uh, before the recent change of upping the upping the uh, limit, uh, twelve to sixteen parties normally would be elected to a Knesset, uh, to the to the parliament, and uh, thirty-five to forty parties would list themselves as running for office. Well, clearly, if you've got twelve or sixteen or even ten parties elected to the parliament, no party is ever going to get a majority. And therefore, uh, you will always have an unstable government. Uh, Coalitions will be formed and unformed. Uh, Bargaining will be done. Uh, Promises made, rewards given. It becomes a kind of a messy, much more convoluted and messy system after the election uh, than it is before the election. Whereas in our system or the American system, once the results are tabulated in a two-party system, one party is going to win and one party is going to lose. That's going to be the end of it. Even in Canada now with our 
with our sort of uh, three, four parties, it's not, you know, so long as there are two major ones and a couple of minor ones, um, it's uh, not enough for the, the, the small parties are not going to hold an axe over the uh, leading party and say, you know, uh, I'm going to quit if you don't do this or that, you know, because the option is, is that there'll be another election and the voters will punish a smaller party for, for holding up the country's business. So, you know, there's advantages to the proportional representation system and there's disadvantages. And um, Israel has uh, chosen that system uh, and has never changed. There has never been a kind of a surreal, mm, we'll call it a real political demand to change the system. They've tinkered with the system, but they certainly haven't changed it. Now, um, you know, to go back into history, once the Turks ended in in their rule in, in, uh, in Palestine, uh, and, and Palestine was conquered by the British. The British took over from about 1920 until 1948. They never introduced a kind of a government system or a parliamentary system, which they could have. If you think of it, um, the, the Canadian system, even the American system, the South African system, the Australian system, the New Zealand system, the Indian system were all modeled uh, in some ways on the British system um, and uh, it was their legacy. So pre-independence of Canada we had a kind we had legislatures that were you know uh, modeled on the British system but they never introduced that in Palestine. There was no popularly elected government in Palestine from nine, under the British mandate. So there was no, uh, you know, uh, template to go on. The Jewish community in Israel had set up their own institutions and elected their own leadership based on a kind of a proportional representation system. And it's that system that they continued once Israel became an independent country. Now, why is the... Um, why would a system of districts be so unsuitable for Israel? Um, the, the answer is, is that there are many divisions in Israeli society, but the divisions are not based on geography. Um, they're based on everything else, on religion, on uh, national origin, uh, on um, uh, you know, th th those are the main ones, but uh, the, the divisions, in, in, you know, are based on ethnicity. Um, and the fact that Israel is a country where there have many, many divisions, as I said, between, let's say, uh, religious and non-religious, ultra-Orthodox, Orthodox, secular, um, Arab, Jewish, um, uh, Sephardi origin, Ashkenazi origin, Russian origin, all these, uh, Ethiopian uh, origin, all these are, uh, we'll call them real differentiations in Israeli society. But what there isn't is a kind of a geographic concentration uh, in most cases uh, 
um, of these people. So in other words, all the Russians don't live in one place. All the Israelis of Eastern origin don't live in one place. All the Arabs in Israel don't live in one place. And so uh, to have districts, if you form the district, uh, let's say some kind of random district in central Israel, you would have such a mixture of people living there. And if you had eight different parties running, each representing one of these sort of ethnic divisions, and the winner of the vote got, let's say, 25% of the vote, and all the other parties got less, 24, 23, 22, 18, 17, 6. I mean, the, the person who had 25% of the vote would win the seat, but he would have zero in common with the other 75% of the electorate. So um, it, it, it's not a system that matches the reality of, his, of Israeli society. And uh, that's why they haven't gone for that system. Um, the system of the parliamentary system has tremendous advantages. Besides, uh, you know, winner take all in every seat, meaning that you limit the number of parties running, you have a representative of a certain place. So if you have a problem with your infrastructure, you go to your member of parliament and you say, you know, uh, Mr. Husfather, you see, um, you know, Cavendish Boulevard is blocked all the time and we want the federal government to help the city to do something. I mean, you know, it's a simplification, but in a way that's the way it works. But in Israel, the politicians who are elected don't represent any place at all. And so, you know, just just the the, the city hall is as high up as you can go to um, you know, make your complaints about local problems. Um, so that's a bit of an introduction. So now let's look a little bit more in specifics of how the Israeli system works. Um, there, the, the name of the parliament in Israel is called the Knesset and the, the word Knesset is, means an assembly. Like the word for synagogue in Hebrew is Beit Knesset, which is the House of Assembly. So the Knesset has 120 seats. And those 120 seats uh, represent the biblical 12 tribes times 10. And despite the fact that the Israeli uh, population has grown from somewhere around 600,000 in 1948 or 650,000, to today, somewhere you know, north of eight and a half million, those 120 seats never went up, unlike our parliament in Canada, where they keep increasing the number of seats. So um, that means that the number of voters, the number of votes needed for each Knesset member is now somewhere north of 50,000 votes. Whereas when Israel started, it was like 5,000 votes. So uh, it just tells you how. Um, you know, how many votes you need to get one, one, uh, the equivalent of one seat. Um, as I said before, 1% uh, of 120, in other words, the amount of votes you needed to get one single seat at the beginning was uh, 0.8 of a percent. In other words, one out of 120 is how many votes you needed to get to get one single seat. And for um, a lot of Israeli history, there were many one seat parties. In other words, 
the party got one and a quarter percent of the vote and they elected one single representative. You know, if you contrast that with our system, you say, well, if 99% of the people don't like you, you're a failure. But in Israel, if 1% of the people liked you, you were, you were a success and you got elected. And they, they raised this minimum from 1% to 1.5% to 2% to now 3.25%. It's still below uh, a standard of about 5%, which is what, uh, for example, Germany uses uh, in, their, in their proportional uh, part of their system. By the way, there's some countries who do use a mixture of districts and proportional representation. And I personally think this is the best solution because it, it gives you the best, the advantages of both systems. Uh, and it, it, you know, it would allow smaller parties like the Green Party to get some representation. Um, we, once had a, a, we once had a case in Israel where um, a, a French Jew uh, was on the run from uh, the law. Um, and uh, in order to escape jail, he, um, he, he, he came to Israel and he was accepted as a Jewish immigrant. He then um, said, well, how do I avoid getting extradited back to France? And the answer was to get elected. And so he spent a lot of money in poor neighborhoods saying, you know, vote for me, vote for me, and I'll give you rewards. And sure enough, he got elected with his one seat. And, you know, he avoided extradition for the whole time that he, um, he was in the Knesset. So, you know, Israel, you know, understood that having 16 different political parties is not the most stable idea. And so uh, for many reasons, uh, they uh, in, in recent times made the limit three and a quarter. To, to just to give you the reason why they made it three and a quarter, this was the idea of Mr. Lieberman, who is a currently running for uh, one of the political parties, the uh, Israel Beitenu party. And, and one of his, um, strong beliefs is very anti-Arab. He didn't like the idea of Arabs being elected to the Israeli parliament uh, because, you know, he felt it should only be for Jews. And um, so the, uh, there were four different Arab parties, but none of them could get over 3% of the vote. So he said, well, let's make the limit of, he was a minister at the time. He said, let's make the limit to vote a three and a quarter percent. Hopefully then no Arabs would get elected. But Sure enough, uh, the three or four Arab parties joined together uh, to make the joint list, and they, in, by joining up in one list, they, they easily passed over the three and a quarter percent limit. So three and a quarter percent is today the the um, the limit. Although uh, you know, there's been talk of lowering it again in order to try to allow some smaller right wing parties to get themselves elected, but it's, it is. It is now uh, three and a quarter percent. Um, Israel's parliament is elected for four years. Um, since 1988, there has not been a single uh, government that has lasted four years. Uh, the current, uh, there have been four elections. There will be four elections in the last two years. There were two in 2019, one in 2020, and now one at least one in 2021. My guess is we could have two in 2021. So, um, you know, a, par, uh, a government will only last until it gets defeated in parliament or until the prime minister resigns and calls new elections. 
And, um, you know, that's been the case now uh, on a regular basis. Um, the way, the way that, um, uh, the way that the prime minister is picked is that after elections are held, the individual members of Knesset meet with the president, which is a sort of a, an honorary uh, title, president of the country, who's Mr. Rivlin right now, and they give their recommendation to Mr. Rivlin as who should be the prime minister. And the person who gets the most recommendations usually is the, part, the, the, lead, the leader of the party with the most seats, usually, but not always. Uh, they, that person gets the first pick to, jo to form a government. Now, since you need 61 uh, votes to have a majority, uh, the uh, prime minister in waiting uh, has to negotiate with enough parties to win him or her 61 uh, votes. Um, if he can't get 61 votes, then the, pre the president of the country can go to anyone else he wants and says, well, you try making a government with 61 votes. And, um, you know, if you succeed, you get to be prime minister. And that's sort of the, the way the system uh, works. So you need a majority of elected members to form a government. If you have uh, in the middle of your term, you know, some of your supporters decide to leave the government, uh, then the government can fall because it uh, can, you know, can't get 61 votes to continue its in office. And so then often elections are called for that reason. Um, Israel has no constitution. So it was proposed in 1948 to write a constitution, but the uh, religious parties at the time who were nowhere near as strong as they are now, they refused because they said, well, the Torah should be the constitution of, of the state of Israel, the Jewish state, and no sort of secular document should take any precedence over the Bible. And so there was never a constitution written. But a series of laws were passed called basic laws, which uh, um, are, you know, the freedom of assembly and freedom of speech and those type of things and establishment of a democracy. And these basic laws cannot be uh, contravened just by a vote of the Knesset. Still, it's not that, uh, you know, not that clear. Um, I had a look uh, at uh, a, a list of political parties. And um, since Israel was established in 1948, the first elections were held in 1949, there have been 93 political parties elected to the Knesset. 93 different political parties have been elected to the Knesset since 1949. Uh, besides those 93, there's hundreds of other ones who haven't been elected. So, um, you know, for a small country, they sure have a lot of different political parties, but these political parties don't represent 93 different ideas. What they represent are um, sort of unions and splits, um, personality conflicts, um, strategic considerations, etc., to either join or split from an existing party to run on their own. Sometimes there's a calculation that say two friendly parties might get more seats if they join together. And sometimes the calculation is that the two political parties might get more seats if they 
run separately. So th this is kind of some of the thinking of how, um, you know, how political parties decide to uh, f form or, or merge or split. So sometimes it's a political consideration, sometimes it's just personality disputes, etc. So how does the Israeli system work? How do you how do you vote actually in this type of a system uh, of proportional representation? Each political party gets to pick a symbol, a letter symbol, um, and that letter symbol has should have some sort of significance. Uh, maybe it's the first letter of of the name of the party. So, for example, let's say in the old days, the Communist Party in Israel would have a kuf or a K for communist to be their uh, symbol. Um, the the Herut party, uh, which is the party of Menachem Begin, started with a Chet, so Chet was its symbol, etc. The Labour Party had an Aleph as its symbol, like A, the first letter of the alphabet, the most important letter, the first one. So they picked an A. Um, and in the olden days, each political party had a single letter as its, uh, as its symbol. And when you went into the ballot box, into the voting booth, you found stacks of papers, all with the, the letter representing a political party on it. There could have been up to 40 different ones. And what you had to do is just go pick one letter one, one ballot paper with the party on it that you wanted, you would fold it in half. You would then go out to the examiner to make sure that there was just one paper that you had. And then, uh, you know, you would check off your name and then you just go drop it in the ballot box and that's how you voted. That's it. Now, obviously, since there have been 93 different political parties, all the letters are used up. All the single ones for sure get used up. And so now the letters are often combinations of letters, like two or three letters together. And the two or three letters together, uh, they, they, they invent them in order to make some sort of a symbol or some sort of a, some sort of a slogan, we'll call it, that sounds good. So let's say, for example, in the old days, uh, when the Labour Party merged with the Ahdut HaVodah Party and with the uh, Mapam Party, so that you had... Um, and, and Aleph and a Mem and a Taf, uh, Aleph being the labor and M being Mapam and the Taf being Achdut HaVodah. So the A-M-T together is Emet, which means the truth. So their slogan was, you know, vote for the truth, meaning vote for the Emet party, meaning voting, vote for the Labor Alliance party. Um, in, uh, in today's election, you have a party called Meretz, which is a join, joining of, of um, Mapam, still that old Mapam party, the M and Rats, which was a, um, uh, a kind of another left-wing offshoot of labor. So, uh, so M and Rats together means merits. M are, you know, Memresh Sadi. And merits means a kind of initiative or, uh, yeah, uh, not enthusiasm, but like initiative. So. In other words, that's the idea. You pick a slogan that has a meaning to it when you put all the letters together. And, um, and that's how that works. Um, and so you just pick one, you drop it in the box, 
And then when they count the votes, all they have to do is they've got, let's say, 40 different uh, piles and they just take one, one, you know, each one, they match it up with the right pile and then they count up each pile and then they count up the number of votes. So the counting of votes is very uncomplicated in that way. Um, by the way, when you pick a letter, when you pick your slogan, the, 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 the letters that you put together have to have a good meaning and not a bad meaning. And I, I'm reminded of uh, the uh, Chevrolet uh, Motor Company who picked the name for a car, Nova. Remember Chevy Nova, crappy car that existed way back when? But N-O-V-A in Spanish, Nova, means it doesn't go. So uh, it doesn't go is not a name for a car. And it never sold in, in Latin America. So in other words, when you pick your, your letters to form a name together, it has to have a, it has to have a, good, a good meaning, not a bad one. And you also have to kind of count other languages that it might make sense in Hebrew, but it might be something terrible in, uh, you know, Russian or in, uh, you know, French or, or, or Arabic. And, you know, therefore you've got to pick up, pick, pick up a good number, a good, a good kind of combination of letters. And there's competition for letters. Once they get picked, you can't reuse them. Um, so... As I was saying that if the minimum now is three and a quarter votes, what it means is the, the fewest seats that a party can get in today's election is four. So in other words, uh, if you multiply uh, uh, three and a quarter percent times 120, you get four seats. That's the minimum number of seats that any party can get. So four seats, uh, you know, it, it's a significant number if you have to start uh, aiming at a 61-seat uh, government. Um, so you vote then for a party. So once you voted for a party, how do you know who gets elected? Um, the answer is that each party produces a list, a numer an ordered list of candidates. So starting with number one, meaning the leader of the party, going down to as many as they want, and they can go down to 120. So if, if one party gets 100% of the vote, they would get all 120 seats in the order that they are written down. So if a party, for example, uh, gets, let's say 10% of the vote, and let's say, for example, that would entitle them to 12 seats. So the first 12 names on the list would get elected and the 13th one does not get elected and all the following numbers, uh, numbers don't get elected. If, well, for one reason or another, one of those 12 people retires uh, or dies, uh, then whoever was number 13 who's sitting in his office or her office or sitting at home all of a sudden gets to be a member of Knesset. They don't get elected. They just get automatically pushed up into that um, slot. And so they will then become a member of Knesset. So that's how the system works. Now, how do you decide who gets on the list? So that's, that's one of the essences of Israeli politics, picking a list that will appeal to the most voters and turn off the fewest voters. So depending on who the party is, obviously, they will pick candidates to match the, the electorate or the clientele that they wish to attract. They're not going to pick people who they won't attract, who will, who will turn off voters. They will pick people who, who will, who, who um, you know, who will attract the most possible voters. 
And depending on the different political parties, they have different criteria in mind. So for example, uh, parties which want to appeal to the most possible voters will try to pick a mixture of men and women, uh, richer and poorer, uh, urban and rural uh, people, um, uh, people from uh, Ashkenazi descent and Sephardi descent, uh, maybe some Arab candidates in there. Um, they will pick people who may be religious or not religious, uh, etc. So that's all the different balances that you have to pick go into uh, an Ethiopian candidate, a Russian candidate. All these mixtures go into the mix and out comes a list in order. But besides all those considerations, you have the consideration of seniority in the political party. I mean, somebody says, hey, I've been working for this party for 30 years and I, I should be you know, given a reward of getting a, an electable place on the list. And once you get elected, then you don't wanna be dropped from the list. You wanna be pushed up to a higher and higher number. And so parties have to contend with the the uh, conflict between senior members who want to keep their high positions on the list and at the same time allow for newer, younger blood to come into the uh, system to attract newer and younger voters. So the whole idea of the formation of the list is a tremendous political exercise. And political parties have dealt with this issue in two different ways. Uh, the old way, was what we would call the cigar-filled, the smoke-filled room way, where a couple of party bosses would get together and horse trade and, and pick out uh, people and put them on the list. And the new way is the primary system, uh, where all the members of the parties would then go, who, vote, go and vote for who they want to be on the list. And the, the, the list is formulated with the results of the primaries in mind. So people who get more uh, votes in the primary get higher up on the list and people who get fewer get lower on the list. At the same time, the political party's um, leadership wants to put in his, his own uh, people and his own loyalists on the list. And so uh, it's a hybrid system of all kinds of pushes and pulls to get to decide who's on the list. What's important is that the lists are published um, a month before the election and can't be changed. So that's the whole point. In other words, when you're voting for a party, you also can look at the people on the list and say, ah, I like this person, I don't like this person. Um, you know, uh, I'll vote for the party because this person's on the list or I won't vote for the party because this person's on the list. So that's uh, the party list system. So half of the fighting takes place in a way even before the election campaign starts to see not only who is on the list, but what the order is. And each party has an idea of how many, how many seats they'll get. So uh, if a party thinks they'll get seven seats, the biggest fights are between uh, number six, number seven, and number eight. You know, who gets to be number 20 or 21 doesn't really matter. So it's that kind of balance area where uh, all of the horse training uh, takes place. Um, now, other parties who only appeal to one segment of the population don't have to look so hard at this balancing situation. So for example, the ultra-Orthodox parties in Israel, which there's two big ones, they've all decided not to have women on their list at all. 
And so they just picked men. Um, I remember in the olden days, uh, I lived in Israel for three years, uh, <clears throat> and I remember seeing photographs of the uh, party uh, list of the uh, Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox party, and they were all old men with black hats and beards. The only thing that sort of was different was the color of the beard, you know, either gray or black. That was a, because between the black hats and the white shirts, they all looked the same. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, at this point, there's no law in Israel saying there have to be women on a list. And so uh, there aren't any in the ultra-Orthodox parties. Uh, the Arab political parties have Arab members on their lists. And, um, you know, uh, so, you know, that's how it works. Some political parties represent a specific ethnic group. And they'll only have people from that ethnic group on the list. So, for example, the Israel Beitenu party, which started off as a Russian party uh, representing Russian immigrants, of which a million came, which is a considerable proportion of the Israeli population, over a million came um, starting in 1970. Well, uh, you know, the first 10 people on their list, uh, nine of them were all Russians and Russian speakers. So, obviously, they were aiming to try to motivate this population to turn out to vote for them. So um, I could do, do a sidebar here and say that, um, you know, in a similar way to the American election, uh, up until recent times anyway, the goal of the Israeli political parties was not to try to convince opponents to change their vote and vote for them, but to get their own voters to come out and vote because pretty well people didn't change their votes all that much. Uh, they pretty well stayed within the same uh, sort of grouping of, of parties. But, um, you know, the turnout, uh, getting your own people out to vote was the key. And uh, good organization, good advertising, uh, and good candidates were the, aim, were, were, were the methods by which you would get your own people to come out and vote. In general, by the way, the Israeli participation rate in politics is quite high by a Western standard. So we're talking now 70 to 75% of eligible voters turn out to vote, which is pretty good in this, in, you know, in this day and age. Um, one of the, uh, one of the um, uh, results of this proportional representation system is of course that smaller parties have an outsized say in how the government works. So in other words, if you have to assemble a coalition to make 61 uh, members to get a government, and sometimes the governments have you know, even more than that, of course, they might have 66 or 67, but if you have a party with 10 seats or eight seats who says, you know, either you do this for me or I leave, you know, that kind of uh, pressure is very hard to resist. And so in Israel, certainly in the last 20 years, the ultra-Orthodox parties um, exerted uh, tremendous pressure on the government to uh, keep uh, the status quo and to, in religion, in religious matters, and to, to uh, keep the ultra-Orthodox uh, uh, young men from being conscripted and to keep uh, the absence of civil marriage uh, in Israel um, a reality. 
And so uh, these people who represent maybe 12% of the population um, have made life difficult for the other 88% of the population who might want, for example, uh, transportation, public transportation on, on the Sabbath and, um, you know, airplanes to fly on holidays and these kinds of things. So that's the disadvantage of that system uh, is that the smaller parties have more power than the votes they get, uh, you know, uh, should, should say. Um, okay. um, now, uh, uh, in general, if we look at Israeli history from 1948 till today, uh, there has been a gradual movement from the left to the right. So from 1948 to 1977, uh, the Labour Party in its different manifestations won all the elections. You can uh, remember um, you know, some of the great Labour leaders, especially Ben-Gurion and Golda Meir, uh, you know, Moshe Sharet, uh, belonged to this period. In, in 1977, there was a, there was an, a revolution <clears throat> and Menachem Begin of the Likud Party uh, well, it was the Khirut party, won the election and um, changed Israeli politics forever uh, in 1977. Um, and um, the, uh, I would say one of the biggest social differences in those days was the difference between Jews of Ashkenazi origin or meaning from Eastern Europe specifically or Europe in general uh, and, and, and Sephardi and Mizrahi origin, or Jews of, of, of uh, descent of people who were thrown out of Spain in 1492, plus Jews who, who lived always in the Middle East, in Iraq or Persia. Um, these, these voters uh, were, uh, in the first 30 odd years of the state, were looked down upon by the Labour Party who ran the country and they felt discrimination and they felt second-class citizenship. And they, they were certainly not secularist in their, in their, um, in their religious observance. And the uh, Menachem Begin succeeded in speaking to them and, 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 and feeling for them. And even though he was as Polish as you couldn't get, uh, they voted for his party. And uh, in 1977, and that vote has continued for its successors. The Khirut party successors were the Gachal party and now the Likud party. So the, 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 the Eastern uh, uh, Jews of Eastern origin formed the bedrock support of the Likud party, even though Mr. Netanyahu and all leaders of the Likud party have been Jews of Eastern uh, European origin. Um, since 19, uh, since 2001, so in other words, for 20 years, the right-wing parties have been uh, in the leadership of the country. So you had um, uh, Ariel Sharon from 2001 to 2006, uh, Ehud Olmert, who went to prison 2006 to 2009, Netanyahu from 2009 to now, and he may, of course, go to prison also. Um, the, um, the reason for this right-wing shift in Israeli politics has to do with demography, 
In other words, uh, the composition of the population, which um, has become the, the people who, who, who are religious have more children um, and the people who are secular are more likely to leave the country altogether. So you have that balance. Um, people who are arriving in Israel uh, are more likely to be religious, new, new immigrants, in other words, from, say, the United States uh, or from France, um, are more likely to be religious and nationalistic, so they get added into the voting pool. And, of course, the number of children that religious uh, families have is way greater than the number of the secular people have. And so, therefore, uh, these demographic uh, uh, changes explain partly this move to the right. Uh, politics also explains partly the move to the right, meaning that the uh, terrorist attacks uh, of the 2000s, the intifadas, the, the, the uprising of Palestinians uh, in the West, violent uprising of Palestinians in the West Bank, um, turned the Israeli mind against uh, the idea of peace with the Palestinians or sharing with the Palestinians. And um, the uh, uh, continuous kind of um, drum beating of the idea of destroying Israel altogether from Hamas and Gaza have turned Israel, Israelis um, from being, uh, you know, left origin, left-wing uh, people who want to have an agreement with the Palestinians over to right-wing people who say, we'll never have an agreement with them. We always have to be tough with them. And uh, this embodies the, the Likud uh, philosophy. So there has been this change uh, over the last 40 years to the point where somewhere around two thirds of Israelis would be described as right. Whereas uh, back in 1948, uh, nine, you would have only one third of Israelis to be described as right. Um, uh, now, here's another question. If, if you need three and a quarter percent to vote, uh, of the vote to get elected, why are there 30 to 35 parties running in every election? Like, don't these parties know they won't get elected? And the answer is yes. But they do it for, you know, publicity reasons and personality reasons and um, vanity reasons and uh, other considerations reasons. Um, sometimes they hope that, um, you know, if they establish themselves as being uh, uh, on the electoral list, uh, then one of the larger parties might pay them off to drop off the list and then reward the leader with something or other. And this has happened plenty of times. Um, you know, there's also sort of international type parties. There's the Green Party, the Pirates Party, there's a Taxi Drivers Party, there are two marijuana parties, uh, Orthodox women who were not allowed, as I said, on the list, form their own political party, uh, a man's rights party, a racist type parties, uh, world parties, green parties, Lots of different parties uh, have come and gone, you know, since uh, the Israeli uh, system was established in 1949. Some of the most, uh, you know, uh, you know, all kinds of different ones, pensioners parties, uh, Yemenite parties, um, you know, every, every 
Just about every division you could possibly think of has had a party at one time or another. But the main divisions in the Israeli um, country are uh, between uh, religious and secular, between nationalists and non-nationalists, and between Arabs and Jews. I mean, there are four tribes, as uh, some writers have written, um, you know, Arabs, nationalists, uh, religious uh, and secular people, ultra-religious. When I say religious, I mean uh, uh, ultra-Orthodox. So ultra-Orthodox, secular, nationalists, and Arabs. Those are the four basic divisions in the country. And each is certainly represented by one or more different political parties. Um, so uh, let me, I just want to check my time. Okay, we've got some time here. Um, the, uh, you know, if we come up to date uh, and say, well, why are elections being held today? Um, as I said, in general, in Israeli politics, in general, coalition governments have always been shaky, meaning that they've never had more than 65 uh, members out of 120. And so the defection of somebody or other will easily overturn a government and make for new elections. And the sort of blocks, we'll call them the blocks, we'll call them the, we'll call them, let, let's say in these instances, the pro-Netanyahu and the anti-Netanyahu blocks have been pretty well equally balanced out. Um, and um, therefore, uh, Mr. Netanyahu, who's the, probably the most skillful politician that Israel has ever had, has always had to kind of work his way, um, work his way to maintain his coalition. And... Um, uh, facing all kinds of different pressures from the right, from the religious uh, people, uh, etc. Um, in general, again, we're going to say this in general. At the very beginning of Israeli politics, it was it was political philosophy um, uh, and sort of life philosophy in general, which separated the parties, and personalities were far less important. You know. You can never separate completely a personality from, from, you know, the leadership of a party from a personality. But, you know, yes, we know about David Ben-Gurion and Golda Meir but, um, and Menachem Begin. But if, you, if I asked you to name the leaders of the other political parties in the Israeli political spectrum in the early days, you, I'm sure you wouldn't remember any of them. And that's because people were associated much more with the idea and the party than with the leader of the party. All that has transformed itself, certainly in recent past, to having parties being created as a vehicle for the leader, rather than a leader being chosen to lead a political party. And uh, for this reason, then, you have even more kind of um, instability because uh, each person who's a leader wants to be the head of a government. And therefore, even if he has no political differences with someone else, uh, you know, it's the, it's the personality conflicts which create the different political parties. And that's sort of, in a way, what's been happening uh, in, in, in Israeli politics in the recent past. 
Um, Netanyahu has been a very polarizing figure uh, because he's been in power for so long. Just the incumbency leads to people saying, you know, impatient people saying, look, uh, he's been, he's had his turn. Now I want to have a turn. Uh, he's also been involved in several corruption scandals, three, three big ones. One was that he promised um, in exchange for uh, good press, um, in exchange for good, 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 um, good press, uh, he promised the newspapers that they would have exclusive uh, rights to um, information that he had. Um, he um, uh, received a bribe uh, for uh, choosing a submarine in you know, West German make. Um, and um, what was the other one? Wait, he's got another corruption one. Uh, you know what? I forgot it for a second. I will come back. Um, uh, so, like the the only philosophy that they have today is either you're for Netanyahu or against Netanyahu, and that's how uh, things are are kind of kind of lining up. Uh, another important thing to know is that Israeli polls are taken all the time, and they're never accurate. Uh, you know, we always used to think of polls as being accurate, but uh, looking at the last two American elections, they sure got things wrong. And more often than not, uh, Israeli, Israeli polls are, 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 you know, are right to, to a certain degree, but often there's a surprise. And, um, uh, you know, that's kind of been the sort of uh, history of Israeli polling. Somewhere along the line, they get surprised. So, you know, uh, we know now, that according to the polls, that uh, if, if Netanyahu in this coming election wants to make a government just with his party and the religious parties, uh, he won't make it. On the other hand, if the anti-Netanyahu forces want to get together and make a government uh, without the religious parties, but without also the far left or the, or the Arab parties, they also won't make it. So it's a, it's a kind of a, a stalemate, we'll call it, between the pro-Netanyahu forces and the anti-Netanyahu forces. So I think what I'm gonna do now is to briefly uh, talk about the different political parties that are running uh, and that are likely to be elected this time, uh, a little bit about their philosophy, their leadership and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, we'll see um, how long we have in that way. Mm, and then, you know, uh, depending, on, depending on how it goes, I may uh, continue this um, for next week, or maybe not. I don't know. We'll see. So um, let's talk about the Likud party, which by all polls is going to be the leading party in seats this election. Remember, there's 120 seats in the Israeli parliament. And right now, the Likud party looks like they're going to get 28. So we're imagine, you know, this is the biggest party in the country, and they get only 28 seats out of 120. In other words, 
maybe a quarter of the votes total. And it just gives you a, a stark idea of how proportional representation is, um, is projected in real terms. So the Likud party, uh, by the way, the word Likud means a kind of, um, what would I call it, a, a union or a coalition or a gathering or a, um, uh, yeah, something like that. And it goes back to the olden days in Israel where you had two parties come together, which were a nationalist Israeli party led by Mr. Begin and the liberal party, uh, liberal in the sense of um, being pro-business, of being uh, not anti-religious, but unreligious, often, um, often uh, supported by Jews of German origin. Uh, so we're going back now, you know, to Jews who came from Germany uh, in the 1920s and 30s before Hitler came to power. Um, they were uh, not uh, in general steeped in socialism. Uh, they were often small business owners. And uh, so they were pro-business. So, so this sort of pro-business element united with a nationalistic element to form uh, the first union of that sort. And that union sort of stayed the bedrock of the Likud party. So it's a nationalistic party. It believes in Israeli settlements in the West Bank. It believes in annexing these settlements at one point or another. Uh, they were very anti-Arab, uh, both uh, anti-Palestinian and anti-Israeli Arab up until uh, recently. Um, they were the ones who said, you know, uh, please come out and vote for the Likud because the Israeli Arabs are voting in two big numbers. That was the previous election. Um, they are a free enterprise party. Uh, so they like this idea of big business and high tech uh, that has been uh, really booming in Israel. Um, they are not specifically pro-religion or anti-religion. Uh, there's elements, uh, people who are in the Likud party are both. There's some people who wear kippahs and there's some people who eat shrimp like Netanyahu. Um, you know, their, their bedrock of support is from the Moroccan uh, Jewish community and from the other uh, Jews of Eastern origin living in Israel. Uh, they're the strongest in Moroccan cities like Ashdod and Ashkelon, Kiryat Gat, places like that, and Jerusalem. Um, and they do have a considerable backing of nationalistic Russian-speaking people who, who, who um, like the idea of a strong leader and a kind of nationalist leader. And uh, those are, you know, the main elements of uh, the Likud party. Next, the next so-called party, and I call it so-called, uh, and a party likely to score very high is called the New Hope Party. It's brand new, it's so new that it has a new name, New Hope. New Hope, what does it mean? Absolutely nothing. And this is a party formed by a Likud a uh, uh, high-ranking Likud member, Mr. Saar, who ran against Netanyahu for the Likud leadership and lost uh, in the primaries. And uh, he just wants to be anti-Netanyahu. He says, uh, Netanyahu has been here long enough. Um, I agree with everything that uh, Netanyahu stands for, but I'm not, I'm not Netanyahu, and I want to replace Netanyahu. 
And so um, I'm willing to join anybody else who, um, who is against Netanyahu, so long as I, Mr. Saar, become the prime minister. So that's him. He has a one-track one uh, philosophy, no Netanyahu. Another one party called Yamina, which in Hebrew means to the right, um, is led by this team of Bennett, Naftali Bennett and Ayelet Shaked, two, two uh, longtime politicians, extremely skilled politicians in Israel. Uh, Mr. Bennett is a, uh, is a modern Orthodox uh, a person, wears a kippah, who became a millionaire in the high tech field and formed uh, or, or became the leader of the sort of modern Orthodox political party and took Ms. Shaked in with him, who is a secular but nationalistic Jew. So it's interesting kind of combination there. Um, they uh, want, to, they get support from the settlers. Uh, uh, they're very nationalistic. Um, they uh, would like to kind of make a, make a, a, a coalition of nationalists who are both religious and not religious. Um, uh, he wants to be prime minister. He feels he's a natural leader of the country, an extreme young, skilled politician. And uh, like Mr. Saar, uh, a strong opponent of Netanyahu. Uh, he's an opponent of Netanyahu because in the last government go around, Netanyahu left him out of the government. Uh, Mr. Netanyahu and Bennett have fought uh, a lot because Mr. Netanyahu suspected correctly that Mr. Bennett wants to replace him as prime minister. So he never got him into the government. So that's the Amina party. Uh, they're likely to go up in seats from, from what they had last time. Uh, you know, the numbers themselves, uh, maybe we'll, we'll get to, uh, uh, you, know, I don't know, you know, at another time, but they, they could get up to 12 seats, somewhere like that. Uh, the third part, the fourth party, the fourth biggest one maybe, uh, is this party called Yeshatid, which is means there will be there is a future. A most interesting party uh, led by Mr. Lapid, uh, a good-looking television personality whose father led a political party called Shinui, which is Change, uh, and the change was that they wanted to be a secular party in the center. So then now we're moving in the center. And uh, he believes in, in secularism, uh, very strong in Tel Aviv. Um, he was one of the two big leaders who joined a coalition called the Blue and White Party to get rid of Netanyahu and whose party uh, achieved great success last time with about 36 seats. But uh, when Mr. Netanyahu offered the leader of the Blue and White Party, Mr. Gantz, a chance to join his government and to be a future prime minister, uh, Mr. Lapid said to Mr. Gantz, don't trust him. You know, he'll never fulfill his promise. And Mr. Lapid and his fellow uh, party uh, pulled out of the blue and white coalition, uh, our blue and white party and formed his, uh, went back to what he was before. So this is a strong secularist party. They want to have freedom of religion they want to have freedom of no religion. They want to have, uh, you know, transportation on Shabbat and 
and uh, they want uh, ultra-orthodox people to pay, be, pay their fair share in society. Um, and, um, you know, they are a centrist government tending toward the left, a centrist political party tending toward the left. Uh, and as I said, interestingly enough, um, the, the sort of, in the old days, uh, it was the wealthier population who voted for the, uh, the old time liberal party, which joined the Likud. And today, the wealthy people in Israel are likely to be secularists and uh, supporters of Yeshatid, which is on the less sort of center left of the political spectrum. So in other words, the correlation of say wealth and poverty don't, uh, don't, don't combine with left and right governments as they, they once did way back way, 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 way back when. Uh, the blue and white party is still, is still together, uh, is half together, I should say. And Mr. Gantz, um, you know, was bamboozled by Mr. Netanyahu because um, Mr. Netanyahu promised him a rotation in the prime ministership. He said, look, I'll be the prime minister for 18 months, and then it's your turn to be prime minister for 18 months, uh, on condition that a budget is passed. And sure enough, uh, Mr. Netanyahu decided not to pass a budget. And so uh, um, uh, Mr. Gantz's turn uh, never came. Uh, he's supposed to be taking over this November. And he might still take over this November if certain things happen um, because, <clears throat> because the agreement that was made between uh, Mr. Gantz and Mr. Netanyahu is still valid, even though um, you know, a new election has been called. So uh, he was a former uh, chief of staff, defense staff in Israel. And there's a long history of Israeli um, uh, military leaders becoming politicians, usually not successfully. Um, and uh, he joined Mr. Uh, Netanyahu's government to end the instability uh, and to deal with the COVID emergency in Israel. So, uh, you know, he sort of sacrifices political career after saying he will never join uh, Mr. Netanyahu, he joined him just to avoid new elections and to deal with the COVID crisis, and hopefully to achieve the promise of becoming prime minister one day. Let me just see what we are here. I'll just finish very quickly. The Labour Party uh, is being reborn under new leader, Meirav Michaeli, who uh, took over the party and is kind of a, you know, the party which was doomed to, to die out after all these years. It looks like they're going to be, um, Reborn again, maybe with six to eight seats. The Merits Party to the left of Labour was uh, the the um, successor to the Mapam Party. They're sort of a very socialistic party, uh, very sort of uh, anti anti settlements, anti annexation, pro Palestinian. They they debated over should they become a, an Arab Jewish party or remain just a Jewish party. And they're on the cusp of not being elected. And then last but not least, you have the joint list of Arab parties, uh, which was a combination of a communist party, a nationalist party, and an Islamist party. And uh, the other great achievement of Mr. Netanyahu was uh, he broke up this joint list uh, party, which had had 15 seats in the last election. So they were the third biggest party. Um, and uh, 
he manages to kind of pry off one of the members, one of the quote, one of the partners in the joint list, promising him that uh, if this man backs Netanyahu for prime minister, he will give all kinds of benefits to the Arab towns and villages. And he started to do that. Uh, and he started to speak nice about the Arab population, which is a real change. Um, and this joint list party of Arab parties actually won 20,000 Jewish votes in the last election because their leader, Mr. Ode, is a personable person, a moderate person, sort of. Um, and he spoke to the Jews as neighbors and said, look, we're not enemies, we're neighbors. And, um, you know, all we're asking is for equal rights in this country. So that's him. Uh, so they will obviously get fewer votes than they did last time because one third of them split off. I think I'm going to stop now. Let me see what we got here for you. I've got lots more to talk about. Um, but uh, it's three o'clock and we'll do some questions and we may pick this up uh, next time or not. We'll see. So uh, any questions about Israel, Israeli politics? Uh, um, you know, I didn't speak about uh, the, uh, the court cases too much, uh, the role of religion in public life, corruption, uh, etc. cetera. Um, but, uh, you know, you have a basic idea of what's happening in the election. So if anything new comes up, I'll speak about it next time. Uh, just one last thing to mention is that because Mr. Netanyahu kind of went back on his word with Gantz, it would be a bit harder for him to make a government now because any promises he makes, um, you know, no coalition potential partner would want to uh, believe him because he clearly went back on his word with Mr. Gantz. So that's about it. Let's hear from you, see what you have to say. Um, by the way, uh, Israelis cannot vote by mail from abroad. If you are an Israeli living in Montreal, you cannot vote. You have to travel to Israel in order to vote. Only diplomats and, and people who work on ships are allowed to vote uh, you know, uh, from outside the country. I don't see any questions, Mr. Dwoskin. Do you have uh, any last words? Well, again, I, I would like to say, you know, similar, you know, there is, a, there is a kind of a comparison between Trump and Netanyahu. They share quite a lot in common, uh, both in their political philosophy and their methodology. Uh, but Mr. Netanyahu is by far and away a far more intelligent, uh, experienced, um, educated, uh, skillful politician than uh, Trump was. Um, what they both share is a kind of a skidding over, skirting over the law. Um, as I said, Mr. Netanyahu has, has been delaying his court cases for corruption now for about four years, saying, you know, well, I'm prime minister, I'm too busy running the country to show up in court. Um, He's denigrated the courts a lot, saying, why should the courts decide things when the people, meaning the elected representatives, should decide and not the courts? Um, so he's really denigrated the courts in the eyes of the people, making the Supreme Court look like it was political. Um, and, uh, you know, in a similar way, of course, Trump, uh, with all the different uh, accusations and court cases against him, uh, got a decision to say, well, so long as I'm president, you can't take me to court. And Mr. Netanyahu tried to play the same game 
and stretch it out as long as he could until finally the court said, yeah, but, you know, at a certain point, you have to show face justice. And, uh, um, you know, Mr. Netanyahu fired his minister of justice for not sticking up for him, you know, for, for, for long enough, that type of thing. Um, it's, you know, the country is only 70 years old. And so it is a kind of an ongoing experiment in a way in democracy, but an extremely successful one. And um, certainly one where uh, there are free elections, um, you know, uh, where uh, uh, there is uh, no kind of intimidation in voting and this type of thing. Uh, and uh, where the results are quite uh, published in quite a detail. So you can really see, you know, from village to village how people voted. And um, there's always that question, you know, in a small place when you see votes for sort of an oddball type party, you know, who voted for that? Who is the person who voted for that party? So, you know, it's a matter of kind of public uh, speculation, we'll say. Um, anyway, you know, it remains to be seen. And the other thing uh, to remember is that Israel's elections are not this. The, the votes are decided on one day, but who makes the government will takes weeks and sometimes months to figure out. It's not like in Canada where the day after the election, the new prime minister is sworn in and that's the end of it. So half of the politics takes place after the elections and half of it takes place before the elections uh, because after the elections, you have to assemble a coalition and make promises to different parties. And often the party will say, oh, I like your promises, but I can't join you if you're going to take somebody else. You know, if you're friends with X, you can't be friends with me. So uh, this kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, we'll call it high school type uh, behavior is extremely common in Israeli politics. Anyway, you know, we'll have to keep our eyes open and see what happens. And in the meantime, I want to just say again that... Um, I know vaccinations are now going full steam. Uh, please get yours. Um, it's so important. And um, I just was reading today, in fact, an Israeli study said that 99.8% of people who have had their second vaccination do not ever get COVID symptoms. Symptoms, never mind being sick or dying or hospitalized. So the vaccine is extremely effective. And, um, you know, and Israel is a world leader in vaccinations already. They've, they've already given uh, more individual shots than there are uh, people in the country. So that's as far as they've gotten. So thank you so much for listening again. Please, if you have any questions uh, that you think of afterwards, um, you know, you can contact Angela, she'll email me or you can email me directly. Um, and if you have a recommendation for another class, let me know. And uh, I hope I'll see you or not see you, but I hope I'll, I'll uh, you, you'll see me um, next week, next Tuesday at two o'clock. So thank you, Angela, for moderating and thank you all for tuning in. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Coats and Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. 
For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Cote St. Luke, visit CoteStLuke.org. Have a great day.